Hi, this is Lily DeHoyas Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. I appreciate your joining me this week. We're talking about Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John chapters 20 and 21. These are the very last chapters written by these four gospel authors. And it's about the resurrection, because the Lord is risen. There's so much to say and so much that has been said before. You know, I talked a lot about the resurrection and the Easter podcast this year, so I'm not going to repeat a lot of that, but I do want to comment on a couple of things. First, little details here that Joseph Smith corrected that I think are important to note. Matthew, Mark, both of those gospel authors only mention that one angel or one man is in the sepulcher when the women come to anoint the body. And those two are corrected. And of course, it's not that they recorded it incorrectly. It could easily have been that in translations or in things that were changed in the Bible through the many years of that Bible record that these things were altered. But at any rate, Joseph Smith corrected both the accounts of Matthew and Mark to say that it was two angels that were there in the tomb. That's interesting to me, that it was important to correct that record that had been somehow changed or lost information. Luke and John record that there were two angels there. It would be interesting to know which angels those were. Could have been Gabriel, Noah, who was one of the angels that announced the birth of Christ to Mary and to Joseph, or could it have been other angels, angelic visitors? Someday we'll know. And then, of course, Luke's version is beautiful in that it contains perhaps the most beautiful rhetorical question ever asked in the entire history of the world, in my humble opinion. Why seek ye the living among the dead? That thrills me every time I read it, every time I hear it quoted. Why seek ye the living among the dead? What an amazingly stunning and beautiful rhetorical question is asked, why are you here in a grave to look for Jesus Christ? And they go on to say, he is not here, but is risen. This announcement is so important. This is the universal message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that all will resurrect, that Christ conquered forever death and hell, because neither of those things are permanent. All will come forth from the grave. All will come forth from hell. Those who don't repent have to pay their price to balance the scales of justice, but they will also be redeemed from hell at the end of the millennium because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, because of the merciful plan of our Heavenly Father. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I think it's interesting also in the book of Luke that in this record, verse 10, let's look at that for a second. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. So they are the ones who go because they want to anoint the body of Christ in the grave, but they find that the stone in front of the sepulcher has been rolled away, and they find that there's no body in the tomb, but they find those two angels that ask that beautiful question. So they're the ones, and what does it say in the next verse? Their words seemed to them, meaning to the apostles, their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Isn't that interesting? I think you know by now that I am not going to ever willingly participate in the man versus woman debate because everybody loses. If men and women are adversaries in this life, we all lose. And too often, this is one of those battles that that Satan seems to get a lot of small victories from, temporary victories. They will all end in his defeat. But he gets a lot of purchase out of this, this idea that, you know, we have to be at odds with one another as men and women, and we have to bash each other, or we have to look down at each other. But I do have to comment on this because it really touched something sensitive in my experience. 
Now, these are good men. And as you've heard me talk about them this year so far, as we've talked about these wonderful apostles of Jesus Christ who believed him and go on to be stellar witnesses, save Judas Iscariot, of course, but the others refine their faith. They receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. They go forth in might and power and testimony and a desire to be a witness of Christ. And they are all martyrs to the cause. These are amazing men, amongst them my heroes, many of my heroes of the scriptures. But they didn't believe the women. (laughs) I think that we could pause for a moment and ask about that for a moment. Do we get caught in that trap occasionally? The women have gone and have seen evidence of Christ's resurrection. They come and tell the apostles forthwith, and they are not believed. Now, it does say that Peter and John rush to the sepulcher to see for themselves, and that they see that the linen clothes there are laid, and they wonder to themselves at that which has come to pass. Or That's what it's talking about with Peter, but we know from the record of John that John was with Peter in that trip to the tomb to see what had happened. But wouldn't it have been easier if they had believed the women? Not that they didn't want to go and see for themselves. That's fine. But wouldn't it have been better if they didn't consider them idle tales? Now, why am I making a big point of this? And the reason is because over the years that I have been doing counseling, I have heard all too many times about women who are in difficult marriages, even perhaps abusive marriages, or married to a man with a serious addiction, which constitutes its own kind of abuse in a relationship, and they go to priesthood leaders for help, and they are not always believed. Now, again, please understand, I have great respect and admiration for all who serve in the callings of the church. I have a special gratitude in my heart for bishops because they carry a huge load. And there is not much training given to them. Of course, they're invited, they're set apart, and they're given keys, and they're invited to seek the Spirit in their callings. And I I grieve when I hear credible and demonstrably true stories from women of situations of abuse or difficulty in marriage brought on by their husbands. They go into a bishop, sometimes even to a stake president, and they are not believed. Now, I will say that there are some times where happily I have heard that eventually a bishop or a stake president has believed. But I didn't expect that. I'll be honest with you. It wasn't something I was saying, oh, well, you're going to go in and talk to the bishop and he won't believe you. And of course, there are bishops who do believe. But too often, I've heard this story. And it did surprise me when I first started hearing this. But as I said, the good news is that occasionally one female client might tell me, well, you know, after three or four times that that I tried to tell these stories and I gave many concrete examples that the bishop finally believed me or the stake president finally believed. In fact, one sister told me not that long ago that she kind of called out her bishop and said, Bishop, I feel like you don't believe me. I feel like you're not believing what I'm telling you about the trouble that is going on in my marriage. And the bishop, she said to me, looked a little surprised. And after they had concluded the meeting, she said, I got an email the next morning I don't remember if it was a text or an email the next morning apologizing. And this, bless his heart, this good bishop had heard her response at least and was thoughtful and prayerful about it, I hope. But he came to a good place where he he said, you're right. I'm so sorry. That is not right. I'm going to believe what you are telling me. And I think that that's a good example of what can be done in those circumstances. So Sisters, this is not about bashing men. It's not about bashing priesthood leaders or the system of the church. Of course, we know that the church, even though it's an organization given to us by Jesus Christ, is run by imperfect people. That's all of us. And of course, there are going to be problems and mistakes that are made because we are human beings. 
And we hopefully can see past that to the fact that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the vehicle of the kingdom of God on the earth until the Savior comes. And we need to be loyal to the church because this is where the saving ordinances are. This is where we can have access to those amazing priesthood keys that give us the temple and all the powers that come from our covenants. So I always would tell my kids, and you've heard me say this before, but it'll be a cold day in hell before I'll let anybody stand between me and the sacrament or me and the temple or me and the kingdom for Pete's sake. Like, why would I give an imperfect person that happens to be in a position of some authority in the Church of Jesus Christ, why would I give them the power to separate me from my covenants or me from my Lord and God? I won't do it. And I hope that none of you will do it. And I hope that we'll talk to our children about this and let them know that just because there are people who are going to get it wrong sometimes does not mean that we turn away from this amazing gift that we have, having the church on the earth at this time with all the powers and keys that are a part of that and all the access to these saving ordinances and to our covenants, to the temple, to the sacrament every week. Anyway, I repeat myself, but this is important. And I am going to say, brethren, believe the women who come in and ask for help. And this could be elders quorum presidents. This could be bishops. This could be stake presidents. It could be a ministering brother. Believe the sisters. Now, I'm not saying a sister can never exaggerate. I'm not saying a sister can't lie. I mean, I hope that's not what's going on. And I would say most of the time, it certainly is not. Of course, you need to use good judgment. Of course, you need to listen carefully. Check what you can. Ask for details. And pray mightily that you can have the Spirit witness to you the truthfulness or the error of what is being said. But please be oriented towards belief. You know, as counselors, we do this all the time. People come and they tell us stories. And how do I know? How do I know? And especially if it's a marriage situation and somebody is telling me, you know, what's wrong with their partner, which happens regularly. And that's what we want in a counseling situation. I need to hear where the problems are. I certainly understand that that's not the only perspective involved. I know there's another side of the story. I don't mean that that has to suggest that the story I just heard wasn't true. It just means that there's more to understand. What is the partner thinking? Where are they coming from? What are their you know, perspectives and, and injuries and all of that stuff? And I am certainly desirous and willing to hear that. In fact, it's always ideal if we can talk to both parties. And as priesthood leaders, you have the opportunity to do that. Nevertheless, I don't start out by saying like, oh, this can't be true. Well, I'm sure you're exaggerating, or I'm sure you're not telling me the truth. And I've wondered, why is it that that can happen to women who go into their priesthood leaders? And, well, I don't know that I have the answer to that. I have wondered if, if maybe sometimes they're a little sensitive to wondering what their wives would say if somebody asked them how happy they were in a marriage. And if that's the case, brethren, please go home and talk to your wives. <laughs> please go home and ask them to talk about how they feel and help them, work with them as equal partners to resolve difficulties that you may have in your own home and in your own marriage. And use that as an opportunity to check again with your spouse. Anyway, let's go on. The other part that I want to just sort of key on in these chapters is in John chapter 20, we have the story of Doubting Thomas. So as you know, the other apostles are in a closed room when Christ comes and appears to them, and they celebrate seeing the living Lord. But Thomas is not able to be there at that time. So when he hears the report, his response in John 20, verse 25 is, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. That's an interesting part of this, isn't it? And of course, poor Thomas, who was a good man and went on to be a faithful apostle of the Lord until his death. It has now this, you know, title of Doubting Thomas. 
And I think that's good because I think it's important for us to realize we can be good people and we can still have doubts. But they do not become us as covenant members of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of his church. We need to be full of faith. We need to choose to believe. And as President Uchtdorf said, or maybe it was Elder Uchtdorf then, I don't remember, but in a nice conference talk said, we should doubt our doubts before we doubt our faith. And that is a really good message. We should doubt our doubts before we doubt our faith and our beliefs. Thomas kind of went the other way for a while, but as you know, the rest of the story is right here in John 20. Christ comes another time when they're in a shut room and he stands in their midst and he turns to Thomas and says, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless, but believing. And then Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And in verse 29, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Now that is great stuff right there. And I hope it becomes an absolute quest for each one of us to be not faithless, but believing, to always default toward our faith in God and everything he says, to believe what the scriptures say, to believe what the prophets say. This should be the orientation of our lives if we are seeking glory, if we are trying to choose a celestial path, if we are trying to create Zion, this is our default. And there are so many things, brothers and sisters, that we do not see right now that are held from us purposefully in order to try our faith or because the time is not right. And I see so many people fainting by the wayside, as do you. And it could be people that we love. It could be a spouse. It could be a child. We could struggle ourselves because our faith is being tried. We are being asked to believe things that we cannot see. But that has always been the pattern. This is the growth of faith. We've talked about this, that there are some kinds of faith that can only grow in the dark or some kinds of faith that can only grow in the valley of the shadow. God is so serious when he says, I want you to believe when you cannot see. There is a veil of darkness. And as Paul says later on in the New Testament that we're going to read, we see through a glass darkly. And I've mentioned this before that in talking with a dear friend, we were kind of chuckling almost, you know, ruefully about the fact that even though we know there's a veil, even though we know we are being asked and given the opportunity to believe what we cannot see, so often we step right up to that veil and we squint and we try to peer into the darkness and we try to discern the future or the answer or the time when the promises will be fulfilled. And the Lord is like, nope, I'm pretty serious about this veil. I want your faith to grow. And as we have discussed it is by faith that Enoch moved the mountains, that he moved rivers out of their course. It is the faith of Enoch that caused the lions to roar in the wilderness. It is by faith that the Red Sea was parted. It is by faith that the worlds were created. So how do we get from where our faith is now to where our faith can be and must be if we want to choose glory and become Zion? We've got to believe what we cannot see. And it's a choice. Brothers and sisters, faith is a choice. It's not that some have it and some don't. I mean, there is a gift of faith. And some people are kind of natural believers. And isn't that wonderful? If that's our gift or if we know people with that gift, that's a wonderful gift. But it's for all of us to be stretched into this place where we believe what we cannot see. And that is a choice. Ultimately, is choosing to believe. I've mentioned this in the past. Once when I was a guest on Follow Him, I think my last time there with the second half of the Sermon on the Mount. And I talked about how I kind of had to pull the faith that for some reason seemed to be on the right side of my brain and pull it over my doubts that were on the left side when we were in a trial where I could not see how God was going to keep his promises to us. I couldn't see it. Let me tell you, I was squinting into the darkness. <laughs> I was really trying to see how can this possibly work out and we survive. And yet I couldn't see. So I chose to believe. And it was one of the great blessings of my life that I was in a situation where I needed so badly to know what was going to happen, and I could not know, but I could believe. 
I could believe that God has made promises to us through our covenants. And if we are being diligent, not perfect, but we are being diligent in our efforts to become better at keeping our covenants, the Lord will honor his promises. I quote this all the time from section 58, right? Who am I, saith the Lord, who have promised and have not fulfilled? Don't go there. The Lord keeps his promises. We can believe him if we choose. And I choose to believe him. Join me in choosing to believe the things that we cannot see, that are promised by our Lord and God. Now, let's talk a little bit about some of the details of the timing of the resurrection. And I think that a lot of you may be familiar with this, but we don't talk about it very much. So let's just do a quick review to see if this helps. And we don't have every little detail about the timing on this, but we have quite a bit. So some of what I'm reading is coming from the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. Some of it is coming from Mormon doctrine. And of course, liberal pieces of the scripture are woven into this discussion because there is a lot said about the resurrection in various places, some in the Book of Mormon, some in the New Testament. Certainly, the prophet taught about this. Oh, the DNC has a lot about that, too. In sections 76 and 88, we have some information that is also being woven here. But let's talk about two basic divisions of resurrections, the first resurrection and the second resurrection. Within each of these resurrections, there are two sub-times of resurrections. So there is the morning of the first resurrection and the afternoon of the first resurrection. Those terms are not used when we discuss the second resurrection, but clearly from the discussions in the scriptures and by the prophets, there is a beginning of the second resurrection and an end of the second resurrection. And those are two different groups of people who will come forth. So back to the morning of the first resurrection. Well, sorry, let me begin at the very beginning And in 1 Corinthians 15, this phrase is used that is such a beautiful phrase referring to the Savior himself as the first fruits of the resurrection, the first fruits of them that slept. So Christ himself begins the resurrection by using the power that is in him as a literal son of God. Remember, his mortal mother, Mary, gave him through inheritance the power to die. Had he not been half mortal, his body and spirit could never have separated. But because his mother was mortal, he had that inherited ability to have his body die and separate from his spirit. From his eternal father, who is immortal, he had the power to keep body and spirit together or to reunite them once they were separated. And this is why it was so essential that he be the only begotten son of the father. He needed to have a mortal mother and an immortal father. So he utilizing that divine inheritance was able to bring body and spirit together again into life after it had been separated in death. So he is the first fruits of the resurrection. Beautiful phrase. And then the phrase, the morning of the first resurrection does not actually appear in scripture, but it is a phrase that was often used by Joseph Smith. And it's recorded in teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. And this clearly refers to the very beginning of the first resurrection. This is from Mormon doctrine now, where Elder McConkie says the righteous dead who lived from the day of Adam to the time when Christ broke the bands of death, were with Christ in his resurrection. And that comes from the Doctrine and Covenant. Part of that is is a quote from the Doctrine and Covenant section 133. But let me repeat that. The righteous dead, who lived from the day of Adam to the time when Christ broke the bands of death, were with Christ in his resurrection. So they participated in the morning of the first resurrection. Meaning, that only those who have qualified for celestial life come forth in the morning of the first resurrection. So there were many who had died since Adam down to the time of Christ's resurrection, but only the ones who had qualified for celestial living and celestial life in the hereafter were resurrected. They participated right after Christ was resurrected. They 
themselves were resurrected, the celestial. So there are a lot of people who have already been resurrected. This is also recorded in Helaman 14. Maybe you remember it talks about that also. And later on in in Matthew 27, well, we've already read that, but it talks about those who came forth from the graves at the time or immediately following Christ's own resurrection. From DNC, this is section 88. It says that all who were with Christ in his resurrection and all who have so far been resurrected have come forth with celestial bodies and will have an inheritance in the celestial kingdom. Now there is a pause on the morning of the first resurrection. So obviously there are many people that were not born already on this planet when Christ resurrected. But that doesn't mean that none of the people who were born and lived and died afterwards were eligible for celestial glory. It means that the morning of the first resurrection is on pause because we are not taught that the resurrection is ongoing right now. So when people die, their bodies and spirits separate. The body is laid in the grave or cremated and the spirit goes into the spirit world. And the morning of the first resurrection will commence again when Christ comes in his glory the second time. So again, there are many comings of Christ in the second comings, but when he comes in his glory, the graves will open again and there will be a continuation of the morning of the first resurrection. So then all the people who since the resurrection of Christ to that point when Christ comes in his glory, who have qualified for celestial life will resurrect. And that will be a large group of people. Well, we don't know how large, but anyway, it's going to be a substantial amount of people, number of people who are resurrected at that time. Now, there are some exceptions. God does do things to complete his purposes. So we actually know that Peter and James have been resurrected, even though the big burst of the morning of the first resurrection was when Christ was resurrected, and then it seems to have been mostly on pause. Now, why do we know that Peter and James have been resurrected? Because they came in the latter days, as recorded in the Doctrine and Covenants, to transfer keys to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. And how could that have happened had they not had hands? We've talked about this before, that there are some people who have keys that because the order of the kingdom is that keys are transferred and authority is transferred by the laying on of hands, they need to have hands in order to fulfill the order of the kingdom. So we know that Moses and Elijah... And Elias did not taste of death. They were translated so that they continued to have a corporeal body with hands and they could transfer keys on the Mount of Transfiguration to Peter, James, and John. That's how we transfer keys. And we've talked about this in the preceding weeks, how they had their bodies by being translated. Now, who else came to give keys? Well, we know that Peter, James, and John came, but John is not dead. John is a translated being as well. He asked of the Lord that he could tarry on the earth until the second coming. So he is continuing the work here as a translated being. So when he had the assignment to come with Peter and James to transfer keys to Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith, he already had a corporeal body. Peter and James must have been resurrected. Moroni is another character who died after the resurrection of Christ had been completed and many years after that, who needed to have a body in order to fulfill his foreordained task to come and bring the place to Joseph Smith and to interact with Joseph Smith in ways that required a body. So Moroni must also have been resurrected. We also know, well, this is This is a little speculative, but I remember when I was an undergrad at BYU, I did some student assistant work for Dr. George Pace, who I gained a great love for and got to know him pretty well. And at one point, George asked me to see if I could find any information on whether or not Joseph Smith had been resurrected yet. So let me tell you, that was a tough search. We didn't have Google back then. So there were no databases. I actually should look it up now. I haven't even thought to do that. But I scoured a lot of early 
speeches by the brethren. I looked a lot in the journal discourses. And you know, it's like 26 volumes of that work. So I'm not saying I read every volume, but I did read a lot in those early speeches to see if there was any indication as to whether or not Joseph Smith had been resurrected. And the only thing I found was kind of fun. It was a statement by Brigham Young, where Brigham Young said that, no, I guess someone asked Brigham Young if Joseph Smith had been resurrected. And he said, no, he hasn't been resurrected because if he had, he would come to see me first with his resurrected body. So anyway, with that typical Brigham Young confidence, it sounds like Joseph Smith had not been resurrected yet. And we don't know of any specific assignment or task where he required a body, a physical body, in order to complete the assignment. So presumably he, but we know that, of course, most of the others who have qualified for celestial life from the resurrection that happened at the time of Christ's resurrection to his second coming will be resurrected when he comes. All the celestial. And then the morning of the first resurrection will continue in and through the millennium. Now, how do we know that? Well, because there will be people who are being born in the millennium. And they can qualify for celestial living as well. For eternal life, they can choose the celestial glory. And so that resurrection will not be completed until the very end of the millennium, when all the spirits that pertain to this creation will have had a chance to come to earth, receive a body, and be tested so that then those who qualify will be able to be a part of the morning of the first resurrection. And that's beautiful. I don't know, and I haven't seen this written anywhere, but it seems to me like, you know, the Holy Ghost is probably going to be the last one to receive his body, right? Because at that point, the part of his assignment and role that requires him to be a spirit without a body will have been completed. Because we know that that the Holy Ghost is not a personage of flesh, but of spirit, so that he can enter into us and we can have not only the witness of the Holy Ghost or the presence of the Holy Ghost, but we can even have the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost if we pursue a diligent path toward sanctification and having that great gift of the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost. And after all other mortal beings have concluded their test, then the Holy Ghost will need to get a body and it will be resurrected at a celestial level, probably in the twinkling of an eye, as for those who died during the millennium. So that is pretty exciting stuff. Now, this is where it gets a little mushy because we're not exactly clear, at least not in anything that I could find. Are we clear on when the afternoon of the first resurrection begins? It may be that that actually overlaps a little bit with the morning of the first resurrection because we do know that people who are living during the millennium will not taste of death, but will be changed in the twinkling of an eye into a resurrected form. So if they're all celestial, that's one thing, but it seems like there could be some terrestrial. I don't know. And that those might be a part of the afternoon of the first resurrection is when the terrestrial come forth. That we do know. And it seems from some things that I've read in the past that I don't remember where I read them, that all the celestial will be resurrected before the terrestrial. So I'm not sure about that overlap at all. It may be that the morning of the first resurrection continues until the end of the millennium. And then at that point, the afternoon of the first resurrection begins. Again, a little bit mushy information on when the afternoon of the first resurrection begins. But we know that it will then be completed at the end of the millennium, whether you know, whenever it begins, it will be completed at that time also, and then there will be the second resurrection. And in the first part of the second resurrection will come forth the telestial, those who have qualified for a telestial kingdom. And then after all the telestial resurrected, there will be just a few who remain, and those will be the sons of perdition who will participate in the resurrection. This is a free gift. No matter how you behave, no matter how you live, you will resurrect if you have been a part of this earth. So even the sons of perdition will be resurrected, but they will receive no glory. The bodies of the celestial will be resurrected with celestial glory. The bodies of the terrestrial will be 
resurrected with terrestrial glory, and the bodies of the telestial will be resurrected with telestial glory. And then the sons of perdition who will be resurrected with no glory because they would not receive that which they were offered. They did not want what they were given an opportunity to receive. And then they will go to their destination and the rest will participate in the final outcome where we are going to inhabit these kingdoms of glory according to what we have been willing to receive. Okay, that's a lot of information. I am going to say that patriarchal blessings often state, but do not always state, and please don't worry about it if it says it or not, you know, because there are lots of things that are not said in our patriarchal blessings that are part of the blessings we can obtain through righteousness and worthiness. So again, I mentioned this before, but patriarchal blessings are not a fortune telling. It's not like some gypsy in a tent telling us this is how your life is going to be. This is meant to be a comfort and a guide, personal scripture, and to help us along our journey. But it is not a comprehensive list of everything that's going to happen in our lives. And some of the blessings in our patriarchal blessing, as we know, will be fulfilled during the millennium or in the hereafter. So we need not to get, you know, twisted up in knots if we feel like, oh, my patriarchal blessing doesn't say that, or it does say this, and that hasn't happened. Please, please don't let that happen. Please don't get superstitious, you know, in that kind of way, because some people do seem to attach almost a superstitious belief in what their patriarchal blessing says or does not say. That is not what they're intended to do for us. So as I began to say, some patriarchal blessings say toward the end of the blessing, typically, that I bless you to come forth in the morning of the first resurrection. And that's a beautiful phrase. It's always conditional, brothers and sisters. Again, it's not a fortune telling. If we are diligent, if we fulfill our covenants or are on the path of fulfilling our covenants and are you know, desirous of completing that path and whether here in the spirit world will be allowed to complete it. And yes, we can come forth in the morning of the first resurrection if we have fulfilled those requirements, if we've qualified for that great gift. And it is a beautiful gift that that, that is a foreordination. We can say that that we are foreordained to do that if we choose to fulfill our part of the covenant that the Lord gives us so that we can have that great gift of choosing celestial glory, our choice. Now, I'm just going to mention again, and from teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, speaking of how the bodies are different, that Joseph Smith in his lifetime said that in the resurrection, some are raised to be angels, others are raised to become gods. And this speaks to something that has been discussed also by like Joseph Fielding Smith, Bruce R. McConkie, his son-in-law. <laughs> they taught a lot of the same things. They were pretty close, and I think they were pretty in sync about their beliefs. But at any rate, that some bodies will have the potential to create life and others will not. So that there will be bodies who are raised to become gods, as Joseph Smith said, meaning that they will have the capacity for procreation. But others will be angels, and they will not have the capacity for procreation. Procreation will pertain only to the highest level of the celestial kingdom, and that is something that our bodies will need to be capable of, and that will be something that is given in the resurrection. So it's important, brothers and sisters, that we decide what our desires are, and we choose glory. If that is our desire, it's every day that we need to choose glory. It's throughout our lives. And when we trip and fall, we need to get back up and get back on the path. And again, it's not about being perfect. It's about being diligent. As we show that we are steadfast in our commitment to the covenants, even in our imperfect way, the Lord will help us and enable us and make up the difference between our capacity and his. Now, I did want to repeat a couple of the quotes, just two of them, from the Easter podcast. <laughs> I hope you remember some of those lovely quotes, but these are some beautiful quotes. Actually, I'm not going to say it's beautiful. I'm going to say I really like it. And in case you didn't hear it, or if you haven't thought about it for a while, I'm going to repeat it here. It's by Charles Colson, who's a man I do not know. But I thought this was a pretty entertaining <laughs> witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Charles Colson said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, 
Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Now that's quite a tribute to those first apostles of Jesus Christ that he chose during his earthly ministry. Let's think about that again. Twelve men testified they had seen Christ risen from the dead and proclaimed that truth for the rest of their lives. About 40 years, never once denying it. And every single one of them endured all kinds of persecution and suffering and ultimately death because of their testimonies. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. And then this reference to Watergate, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world. And they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. <laughs> I love it when people put things together like that because that was a new one for me. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, I don't think I thought about the resurrection when I was hearing the news about Watergate. I was <laughs> still pretty young back then. But I certainly didn't have this insight. But I love it. I love this juxtaposition. 12 men kept their witness strong, no matter what the persecution and ultimately the cost of their, of their martyred lives. For 40 years, they never deviated from their witness. And 12 of the most politically powerful men in the world couldn't even keep their lies straight for three weeks. Yeah, it's not possible that it was a lie. We have a wonderful witness. That's why we call this the New Testament. It is a testament of Jesus Christ and of Christ crucified, and of Christ resurrected, risen from the grave, forever breaking the bands of death and hell for all who are part of this mortal existence, and giving us the chance for eternal life if we will repent in his name. Now, this is a C.S. Lewis quote that I love, so I just quote it every time I can, right? <laughs> and I hope you are familiar with it, too. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Isn't that gorgeous? And by the resurrection, we should be able to see everything, you know, through that lens. How does that change what we see when we believe that Christ is risen from the dead? that he has forever broken those bands of death. Like, how does that change our vision today? Remember, where there is no vision, the people perish. And people do perish. People faint along the way all the time when we don't keep this knowledge bright in us, this testimony bright in us, that Christ is risen. That he is our living Lord and Savior, our living advocate with the Father, he lives. By that knowledge, we should see everything else in our lives. So to repeat C.S. Lewis's beautiful words here, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Okay, I'm going to start something that I will finish on Patreon, but I just want to, you know, mention a couple of things about this here on the regular podcast, and then I will go into greater depth and greater length about this. I received an email from a podcast listener that really broke my heart and touched me from a wonderful person. I'm going to call her Emily. That's not her name, of course. And I'm just going to read you the first couple of paragraphs, but I want to have time to address this more fully. So I will do that on Patreon, but I will say a couple of things about it here. Taking from a part of the email, I've been married for over 20 years. My husband has been a bishop. I'm finding that I feel more and more adrift spiritually lately. Several months ago, a friend of mine whose spouse is gay shared a podcast with me, which is created by LDS people and supports LGBTQ people. 
On that podcast, they interviewed a lady who wrote a book about how Christ had the harshest words for Pharisees, rule followers, and people who focus on strict obedience. I really disliked the podcast. Now, you know what she's talking about, right? She's talking about how we have a lot of you know, stuff out there these days, a lot of voices out there who are advocating for people who are struggling. And that's a good thing. I mean, it's good to advocate for, for all who are struggling or suffering. Nevertheless, do we advocate to the point where we then have to depart from the gospel of Jesus Christ or the commandments or the requirements of eternal life in order to not make people feel bad? And that's what she's talking about. That's why she disliked the podcast, because look how they're defining the Pharisees. Rule followers? No, the Pharisees were fake. They were total hypocrites. They weren't really following the commandments. They were just posturing so that they could look better than other people and maintain power or prestige or status and get their recognition, get their alms from men or their recognition for their alms in public, remember? So they were not real rule followers, and that's part of the problem is that now we're hearing too many voices who are equating those who choose to obey as some kind of, you know, pharisaical life. That's not true. It's a half-truth. It's a problem that recurs again and again, you know, calls evil good and good evil, just as Isaiah prophesied. We are certainly in that day. And we see this again and again, where people who are trying to be faithful to the Ten Commandments or Christianity in general, and certainly to the gospel of Jesus Christ, are called haters and bigots and narrow-minded and told that we're Pharisees. That's what she's hearing. And how sad is that, right? So she disliked the podcast. And then she goes on and says, the reason my friend shared the podcast with me was because a group of us were talking about the new for the Strength of Youth Guide. I was distraught when it was changed. I had done what President Nelson asked. We had read it and worked on it with our children. We knew it and loved it. Then it changed. Then all of a sudden, friends I have had for years started saying how glad they were it changed, how their kids were going to get tattoos that expressed the pain they went through when being bullied or when a parent had died, and how it felt so much better to have fewer rules. I think I talked about that once before, that I had a comment from somebody once in a class saying that, you know, hey, if we look at this new first strength of youth pamphlet, it says, you know, there are a lot fewer rules. You know, there's a lot smaller circle of things that really constitute sin or offense toward God. And I mentioned how my thinking is actually just the opposite, because I feel that the closer I want to get to sanctification, I mean, and I do, I am seeking that great gift of sanctification, which requires that I become more pure, that I become more holy, that higher and holier path that President Nelson continually reminds us of. And that means there are more and more things that I need to be careful to eliminate from my life. I think I remember hearing this about Wendy Watson. This is not a firsthand information, but that somebody was asking her, who is now Wendy Watson Nelson, the prophet's wife, but she was single for a long time, right? And someone asked her how she learned to receive revelation and have the spirit so present in her life. And her answer was, Something like, I looked at my life to find the things that might offend the spirit, and I tried to eliminate them. Now, that's so obvious when you think about it, right? So does that make the list of things that we should avoid smaller or bigger? Well, I would say it makes it bigger, not because the Lord is trying to burden us with a bunch of do's and don'ts, but just because he's saying, if you want this great gift of the Holy Ghost in your life, You cannot allow yourself to be in places that would offend him or to be imbibing information or content that is going to offend the spirit because then you're going to be on your own because he cannot stand in places that are corrupt or unrighteous or that offend the spirit. So look how sad that is, that this is how people are taking this. We've talked about this a little bit in the past. Here we are again. I know that many people who have talked to me since then, new pamphlet and said how much they dislike it. Now, I am going to say, we've got to shift that. We've got to shift that and understand that this is a a step forward if we choose to take it. Of course, there are going to be people who pervert it. 
I mean, that's always the way. Satan always comes and tries to create a counterfeit. And boy, he was quick on this one. And people fell for it really fast to say that now there are fewer rules. I think I've mentioned this before also, but another friend was telling me that she had people in her ward or that were some of her friends or acquaintances who were being more casual about wearing garments and saying like, I just feel so much better. And this friend was like, I don't get it. Why do they feel better when they're doing something that clearly is a violation of covenant? And I said, but you realize that if these people weren't fully converted to the wearing of the garment, then feeling like they have, you know, loosened the parameters on that, and now they don't have to wear their garments in the way that we are asked to wear our garments. Of course, they are going to feel, quote unquote, better because they have stopped struggling with their natural man. You know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? So if they're still in that arena or in that battleground of should I wear my garments or should I not? And now they feel like there's permission not to wear them. They can say like, oh, yeah, I feel so much better because I don't have the struggle anymore. But what if we had crossed over Jordan? And we were actually converted to the beautiful gift that the garment of the Holy Priesthood constitutes in our lives. What a great blessing it is that this is a symbol of our covenants with God and that we honor it and that it can be a shield and a protection to us. Like if we have that confidence, then we are not happy about the idea of not wearing them. It would be a loss. And that doesn't mean we have to become you know, rigid and try to wear them when we're swimming or anything like that. It just means that we don't protest. We don't have two minds about trying to serve both God and our worldly pull, because it's the world that is trying to tell us like, hey, those garments are a problem. It limits what you can wear. You can't look cute, which that one really makes me crazy. Is that like, seriously, to be pretty, to be beautiful, you have to descend to immodesty? What, do you think God doesn't know what beauty, what true beauty really is? What really shines forth as beautiful? I have to say, a, a friend in my ward who has a modest clothing line for women and children, and she was mentioning that in a little, you know, anyway, she was introducing herself to the group because of a new calling. And she, <laughs> bless her heart, it was so beautiful. She said, I started this clothing line because I love wearing my garments. And I just wanted to make it easier for women and children to find modest clothing. And I I just thought that was so beautiful. And I did comment on it. I said, wouldn't it be wonderful if every single person in the church could echo that total sentiment of, I love wearing my garments? Because then we're not going to see the you know supposed relaxing of a rule as permission to break it and then feel better, quote unquote, because we no longer have to struggle with our natural man. How tragic is that? Okay, sorry. Going on with this email. The dresses my daughter's friends or my son's dates wear to dances embarrass me, but it is the norm now and no one should say a thing about it. No one can say a word about it. You know, I'm going to stop there. And there are three or four more paragraphs of concerns that she has as being a solid saint and feeling like the support for being an obedient, solid saint has shifted to where there is more advocacy and more support for people who are marginal or even disobedient but at least marginal in their obedience or where people are picking and choosing. And this is this is really sad. This is really sad that this feeling is coming. But I am going to say, while I will answer this more on podcast, I'll finish the email and I will answer it. I did send her a quick email response that included some of these things. First, I said, your email breaks my heart. I'm so sorry you're struggling with this mixed up bunch of half-truths. I said, I have a lot to say about this, but I can't get to it immediately. I will probably do a podcast on this very subject as soon as I can. I'm also trying to work on a healthy boundaries book that will address some of this as well. So that is to remind me to tell you that the book is progressing. It's not as fast as I would like because I have a hard time finding time to write, but I am getting more successful at setting aside some writing time. And the bulk of the book is written. I still have things that need to be discussed in chapters of the book, so I am really hopeful to fulfill my commitment to get that book written this year, hopefully not 
even at the very end of the year, but earlier so that I can get it going to press. Anyway, that will take longer. I said, of course, but please hang in there. And I said, just for now, number one, Christ hung out with sinners in order to tell them to repent and change. Like, let's be careful here. We hear this all the time now that, that Christ would hang out with the adulterers and the thieves and the, you know, whatever. But why? Because he told them that they needed to repent in order to come to him through covenant and be saved in the kingdom of God. He called righteous men, not the sinners, to be his apostles. Like, that's obvious, right? Peter, James, John, all the rest of those early apostles were not sinners. They were observers of the commandments. They were watching for the Messiah to come because they knew the scriptures. And I hope that you're watching The Chosen when you can, because it's a fun series. And I think they've done some really nice things with it. They'd certainly take some poetic license, and that's okay with me because we obviously don't have all the information, but I think that they're doing a wonderful work there. And in that, you get that. If you think about it, you can see that those men who are called to be his apostles were not called from amongst the adulterers or the sinners. He called them you know, men who were saying their prayers, and that is shown in some of the episodes in the series, that they're like saying prayers over their food, that they are praying at the beginning of the day, praying at the end of the day. They're observers of the commandments. That's who Christ uses. The Pharisees were not like you or me. And I said this a moment ago, but they were hypocrites. Their hearts were set on the recognition of men and the cultural and political power they wielded. That is not what a righteous, rule-following saint is. And that is a terrible half-truth that is said there. By strict obedience, Jesus won the prize with glory rife. That is and ever has been and ever will be our example. Not rigid, but yes, strict obedience. Because the closer we come to sanctification, the more we need to be careful about those things that can offend the Spirit and eliminate them from our lives. And then I do mention this for her husband and for her because, you know, his serving as bishop and the callings that she has, even supporting her husband as a bishop's wife. I said, we do need healthy boundaries to prevent burnout and from running faster than we have strength. And again, I will deal with that more in the book, but that's an important item for us to remember too, because she is talking about feeling a little burned out by the demands that are on people who are willing to be obedient and how yet they're sometimes getting the message, those of us who try to be obedient, that somehow we're Pharisees and we need to be more like the sinners. Like how weird is that, right? Okay, I am going to end with this verse that is from 2 Corinthians 4, 8 to 10. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Now that ties into our topic of resurrection, so let's look at it a little more closely. This is, this is a beautiful verse by Paul who is talking about what we go through in life in every era of life, and certainly here in the last days, where we know that if these days were not shortened, even the elect would fall. So these are tough times, and the Lord has warned us of that and told us of it, but he has said that they will be shortened so that we can endure, so that those of us who desire to choose glory, to build Zion, can endure even in these difficult times. So let's think about what Paul is saying here. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. Now, how do we manage to do that? Well, he's going to give us the answer here at the end of the verse, but we are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. And I might add, never forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. And why? Because we can always bear about in our bodies the dying of the Lord Jesus. We can always remember his sacrifice, his great love for each of us. We can remember that constantly. We could keep our eyes single to our Lord and Messiah, Jesus Christ, 
who died for us, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. So we can manifest in our very bodies the resurrection of Christ by not letting the troubles that we experience on every side cause us to end up in distress. And now, of course, we're going to feel distress from time to time, but don't land there, brothers and sisters. I say this to my grandchildren sometimes. It's natural to feel anxious. It's natural to feel depressed sometimes, but don't land there. We have the ability to tap into our anti-fragility, the anti-fragility with which we were created so that we do not have to land in distress. We can be perplexed sometimes, but not in despair. We can withstand persecution and not be deceived into thinking we are fully forsaken because we will never be forsaken. Remember that beautiful verse of how firm a foundation that says that soul who on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I cannot I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Let us not be deceived by how hard the world is. <laughs> it is hard. It is hard. But we, because we know of the dying Christ and the resurrected Christ, can manifest in our lives every day that we are not forsaken no matter what it looks like, that Satan will come after us, but he does not have power over us that we don't yield to him. And we must not yield. We don't have to yield because our Savior is mighty to save and will crush all enemies under his feet. Brothers and sisters, let's do it. We can do this. We can choose glory. We can build Zion. It's ours to do. We have all the tools necessary. Let's get about it. Thanks as ever to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care.